Well, that's a fantastic reading and very beautiful. And thanks, Tom, for your very kind introduction and a very warm welcome back here. Um, I'm always a bit nervous uh, when I'm being introduced to someone who used to teach moral philosophy. I've always maintained teaching philosophy as the secular equivalent of speaking in tongues. The, um, <laughs> the difference is, is that when you teach philosophy, even angels can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I, um, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at that passage, but if you do have a Bible, if you could also just stick your uh, finger in to uh, Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 36, and we're actually um, going to be making a um, a connection here between, between these, these two things. I um, uh, always struggle trying to uh, repeat a message um, back to back on a Sunday. It doesn't seem to be a particular gift I have. I tried it again six months ago. It was horrible. And so um, we're going to cover the same kind of ground that was covered in the first service, in case you were talking with friends afterwards, but we're just going to come at it from a very, just from a very different angle. But I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you were to uh, invite me maybe to meet with a few friends of yours who, who aren't Christians, maybe very staunchly anti-Christian or upset with the church, angry with the church. And you say, Michael, I'd just love to have a dinner meal just around the table, you know, so we can just talk. So we're all sat around the table, and you then say, well, you all know, you know, Michael's here visiting Kansas City. I thought it'd be nice for him to meet with you. And Michael, why don't you just share one or two things with us, and then I thought we could have a conversation around the table. So I smile at everybody sat there, and I look at them all, and I say, well, the main thing I want you to know today is that I know for sure I'm going to heaven. Now, imagine we just stopped there, and we gave everybody around the table a piece of paper, and you then said to all of your friends, non-Christian friends, I would like you to write down on this piece of paper what you think about Michael Ramsden. Now, what are the words that are going to be used to describe me? Now, arrogant is certainly going to be amongst one of them, together with being self-righteous, self-assured, pompous, and British. So, all of these, which, of course, none of those words are associated with British people. Now... What I would say is that that would communicate something very negative. As a matter of fact, a lot of people who uh, read the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and there are quite a few people out there, they, they love the Gospels, they don't have any problem with that necessarily, even if they don't quite believe them, but they find Paul particularly offensive. Because isn't he arrogant? Doesn't he have an assurance of, of salvation? Doesn't he seem to go around saying, hey, I know that I'm going to be with Jesus and it's all, I'm going to be in heaven when I die and it's going to be wonderful and so on? I mean, how can he be so sure? I mean, how much self-assurance, sort of self-conviction, self-righteousness do you need to be that certain that God Himself is eagerly awaiting your arrival in heaven so we can just have the privilege of having a conversation with you? I mean, isn't that something which is, is, is wrong? So there is something which is going on here which is actually very, very, very important and we really do need to get to grips with because this is a very legitimate complaint both within and without the church about arrogance because arrogance is not a quality that in any way we feel should, uh, that anyone feels really should be emulated or advocated for or what have you. It is something which is negative. I, I can remember talking with a, um, a lady who'd, who'd come to uh, an event I was uh, speaking at, and at the end of it, she came up. It was, a, it was a long event. It was a two and a half hour Q&A. And she came up and she said, look, I really loved this, you know, this time, this evening. Um, she said, and you answered the questions, I, I, I enjoyed listening to it. She said, but you seem to assume something in your answers that you were never expressly asked about. And I said, well, what was that? And she said, well, you seem to be assuming as you answer all of these questions that there's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. Is that correct? And I said, yes, that, that is what I believe. And she said, well, I could never become an arrogant person like you and say that everybody else is wrong. She said, that's why I'm a Buddhist. I said, you're a Buddhist, 
I said, that, that's interesting. Are you an active Buddhist? She said, yes. I said, tell me, didn't the Buddha say that the Hindus were wrong? Didn't the Buddha say that the Vedas are not a divine revelation from God? And didn't he say that the caste system, which is at the center of Hinduism, is evil? And she looked at me and she said, he did say that. I read it this morning in my devotions. So I said, look, if you're prepared to follow the Buddha when he says other people are wrong, why are you not prepared to follow Christ when he says other people are wrong? And she said, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> and I said, look, I appreciate you may feel uncomfortable, but do you see the point? It was incredible to see her in church the next morning. Um, and at the end of the service, I had the privilege of sitting down, we were sitting down with her, and she just broke down into floods of tears. And she just began to explain some of her history, where she'd come from, what had happened to her in the church, why she'd left, and where she was now. And then I had the privilege of praying with her. If you are here this morning and you have felt disillusioned with the church or disappointed with what you've seen, if you feel that you may have rejected it or maybe you're in the process of giving it up, my one appeal to you would be not to give up something because you've encountered a fake version of it or something that wasn't real. Make sure if you are doing that, you're giving it up for what it actually is, having understood its nature. And I would, what I'm going to be trying to say with you this morning is that there was something about the very nature, the very heart of the Christian faith, which is inherently humbling. It's not accidentally humbling. It's not incidentally humbling. The Christian faith, the Christian gospel, once properly understood, is an inherently humbling thing. It brings you literally to your knees. Because if it is the case that we are unable to save ourselves as humanity, if it is the case that God loves us and He has stepped down into this world, and in His love for us, He has given Himself to pay the price for us on a cross for something that we ourselves could not pay. If He stepped down in this world to effect a rescue, to lift us out of the mess we're in, and the only thing that we can do is put our hand in His, there is something inherently humbling in that. If that is true, it is inherently humbling, and you cannot help but fall in love with someone who has rescued you. Let's suppose we get to the end of this morning and you walk out of this this auditorium, thinking, I never want to see Michael Ramsden again. That was disappointing. And as you're talking with, you know, some old family friends later today who ring you at home, they, you tell them about, about hearing me, and they say, Michael Ramsden, tall guy. And you say, yes. You say, English accent. Yes, I was raised in the Middle East. Uh, my mother's actually from Cyprus. The, my English accent comes because I used to listen to the BBC World Service. So if you ever do, this is the voice of the BBC. Can you recognize the accent? Anyway. Um, and they say, you know, good looking. You say, mm, yeah, maybe. And they say, you know, there's something about Michael you don't know. When you were a very young child, you were dying from a very rare kidney condition, and there was no hope. And Michael happened to be visiting the city at that time and offered himself up for a genetic test, and he turned out to be a perfect match for you. And he gave one of his kidneys so you could live. Now, let's suppose you found that out about me this afternoon, having thought you'll never want to see me this morning. How would that piece of information change the way you felt about me? Is it possible that you might try and trace down my email and at the very least send me a brief note saying, Michael, I'd never heard this story before. I never knew how this took place. I just heard from some family, close family friends that this is what you did, and I just want to say thank you. Isn't that what you would do? Jesus Christ... And God in Christ has done much more for us than just simply give us a kidney. He is coming into this world and He has given us Himself. And when you realize what He has done in order to rescue you and I out of the mess we're in and to bring healing into this world which is so broken, you can't help but fall in love with Him. It's what you want to do.
One of the really interesting things about this story that Jesus tells is he talks to a group of people who felt righteous in themselves. They felt they were good. They felt that they were, you know, they were in the good, right place with God and God approved of them. And then this guy stands and he prays this very arrogant prayer. And he says, Lord, thank you. You didn't make me like other guys, tax collectors, sinners, adulterers. You know, you made me so much better. And he is boasts not in what God has done for him, but in what he has done for God. He boasts about his giving. He boasts about his spirituality, how, how much super, spiritually superior to everybody else. He's saying, God, I give more than you've asked for. And, you know, I pray more than you asked for. I'm, I'm much more spiritual than everyone else, and, you know, look, good for me. And the motivation is entirely wrong. He is thinking that because he gives, because he's trying to obey the law, because he's a good person, God somehow approves of him. But Jesus tells a story in which this guy is not justified before God, is not made right before God, doesn't go home before God, and instead he picks up on a sinner, someone who is sold out, who is compromised, who is broken, who is wrong. And that person at the end of the story Jesus tells, he goes home having been justified before God, having been made right before God, having been put in relationship with God. Jesus tells a story that turns much of what people's understanding on its head. Why is it that Christians want to give? Why is it that we want to pray? Why is it we want to do this? And the answer isn't because, well, we feel that we have to for some strange reason. It's because we want to. My eldest daughter is now 17 years old. Um, by the age of 15, she'd grown her hair all the way down to beyond the base of her spine. So she had very, very long hair, and she knew how much I, I liked her long hair. And I was going away on a trip, and she said, Dad, you need to prepare yourself for a shock because when you come home, I'm, my hair's going to look very different. I'm going to have a haircut. Now, I'm one of these guys who, when I'm watching TV, I'll turn to my wife and say, Who's, I've never seen that actor before. And she was like, he was in a movie last week. And I was like, no. And, but I'm one of those people, if you, if you change your hair color from brown to blonde, I can't recognize you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, it, just, it just doesn't work. You know, so I think I'm seeing new actors and actresses all the time, and all they've done is grown their hair, cut their hair. So I think my daughter was worried that I might not know who she was, which is why she, <laughs> she prepared me. Anyway, I knew things were, were, were going to be major when I arrived back in the UK, and I got in a car to take me back to Oxford. And while I'm still driving back, my wife rings me and says, look, when you come home, you are to say nothing to Lucy apart from the fact that she looks beautiful. <laughs> so I knock on the door, and the door opens, and my daughter's had her hair cut up to here. And I just smile and I sweetheart, say, sweetheart, you look beautiful. Right? I'm a man under authority. I do as I am told. <laughs> if you don't know what that feels like, speak to my good friend, Nabil Haddad, there too. He can explain to you what that means. So we're men under authority. Now, my wife leads the cello section in a local orchestra in Oxford. Uh, that's one of the things that uh, she does outside of, out of her workplace. She's a very gifted cellist. And, on a Monday night, a few nights later, she's out at, a, at an orchestral rehearsal, and now I'm sat alone next to my eldest daughter, and we're watching the news. And now here's the opportunity for me to ask her the question I've been dying to ask for days. So I just start breathing in, out deeply, calm, you know, <laughs> just be calm. And then I smile, because I don't want it to come out wrong, you know, so, yeah, so smile, happy, <laughs> calm, you know. And I just, as casually as I can, I turn to her and I say, so, I say, uh, what prompted the change of hairstyle? Was it fashion? Were you bored? Do you want to try something new? And she said, well, she said, I saw this documentary on TV a couple of weeks ago about this charity that look after young girls, seven, eight-year-old, six, seven, who've had leukemia. And because of the treatment they've been given, they've lost all of their hair. 
And one of the things they do is they have wigs made for these girls to replace the hair that they've lost. And they were saying how difficult it was to find real hair donors. So she said, so I had my hair plaited in a special way and tied off and cut. And I said, I mailed it off to them so they could make a couple of wigs for some of these girls as a result of you know, this TV program I saw. And my daughter's a very avid reader. She's been a very avid reader since the age of eight. And um, I said to her, I said, sweetheart, have you read Little Women? And she said, I have. And there's a scene in that book, if you've read it, where this, the heroine of the book, this very feisty young woman, uh, sells her hair and has it cut off so she can buy a train ticket so her mother can go and visit her father who's dying in a military field hospital hundreds of miles from home. And as she hands over the money, the mother takes the envelope and looks at her daughter and says, your hair will regrow, but you'll never be more beautiful to me than you are right now. And as Lucy shared that story with me, that seemed to be the only line I felt that somehow could capture how I felt about what she had done. The reason why Christians give, though, isn't because somehow we're trying to endear ourselves to God. It's because He has given everything to us. We don't give to somehow make, impress ourselves to Him. We give because we've already received. Does that make sense? Flow, oh, it's just an overflow of the generosity. It's an overflow of just falling in love with Christ who has given everything for us and rescued and saved us out of this world, and we can't help but want to live that way. That's what we want to do. That's how we, that's how we want to act. In my uh, Bible reading a couple of days ago, I was uh, reading the story of a girl called Hattie Mae Wyatt. She was a six-year-old girl at Grace Baptist Church way back in the 1880s. She um, uh, was talking with her minister and, uh, about the children's church, and she just said to him, you know, it's so crowded in the Sunday school for kids, I, I'm scared to go in on my own. It's, it's so full. And the minister said, you know, we're going to build a bigger, bigger Sunday school so everyone can go and all the kids can fit. Well, she died two years later at the age of eight, and as they um, uh, went to her bed, they found under her bed a little bag, and in that bag was 57 cents with a note she had written saying to help build bigger so that ch more children can go to Sunday school. So the mother gave it to the minister, and the minister converted all of those cents into pennies, and he sold them off. He raised $250, and 54 of the cents were retained. He then converted all $250 into pennies, and he changed, began to sell those off and founded the Wyatt Mite Society. Now, four decades later, the pastor of that church gave a sermon. Uh, sorry, 26 years later, the pastor of that sermon gave a, a sermon entitled The History of 57 Cents, where he explained what had happened since she had done that. There was now a church of 5,600 people, a hospital that had treated tens of thousands of patients, 80 young thousand people had been sponsored and sent through university, and 2,000 missionaries had been sent out across the world to preach the gospel. But that girl gave, not in a way to endear herself to God. She gave out of the love from God she had already received. And that's the problem with the prayer that we read of this Pharisee, this religious leader, this righteous man. As he stands in the temple and prays, God, thank you, you made me better than everybody else. I give a tithe of everything I get, which you don't have to do, but he does. I fast twice a week, not just once. I'm doing so much better than everyone else. And God is thoroughly unimpressed with this proud, boastful, and arrogant prayer. Another guy stands there, and his prayer is very different. He prays through tears. Now, there's an interesting parallel between this passage and what happens in Luke 7. So if you do have Luke 7 with you, if you want to just turn back there, let me just make a few points about this. This is Jesus who's been anointed by a prostitute. Now, why do we say a prostitute? Well, she, the woman in question is wearing an alabaster jar, which is filled 
um, with a nard. Now, the way these alabaster jars work is that the body heat melts the, the perfume. The perfume is almost like the consistency of butter. That makes sense, like of lard. And the body heat melts the lard, and the, the alabaster jars are porous. Liquid will flow through it. And so the perfume, you know, as the body heat melts it, you know, slowly sleeps out of the alabaster jar, and it perfumes the whole body. Now, when you're in a culture where water is a precious commodity and there isn't a huge amount of it, and you're working as a prostitute, this is a basic tool of the trade. But this thing is very expensive. This kind of quality perfume that you know, doesn't melt to, you know, it's just at the right, melts at the right rate and so on, is very, very, very expensive. And what happens is Jesus goes to eat at the house of a, of, a, of a religious leader, another Pharisee, an upright man. And she also bursts into tears. Now, it's very important to understand what's going on here. Because some people read this parable and think, you know what, if I do nice things for Jesus and if I love him, then he will forgive me. But that's not what happens here in this story. What happens in this story is Jesus arrives at a Pharisee's house. Now, Jesus later on says in the passage, when he's talking to the religious leader, he's saying, from the time I entered this room, she has not stopped looking at me. Now, if I were to say to you, from the moment I walked into this auditorium, you haven't stopped looking at me, who was here first? Well, you were, right? If I say, from the moment I walked in and came up here, you haven't stopped looking at me, that means you were here first, I came into the room after you, and you tracked me. So when Jesus later, as he's telling the story, says, Simon, do you see this woman from the moment I entered? She hasn't stopped doing this. She's there ahead of him. Now, what's the prostitute doing in the leader of a Pharisee's house? And the answer is, actually, she's not doing anything wrong. When you entertain, because as a Pharisee, in order to fulfill the law, you have to extend arms and hospitality to other people. That's part of your duty. It's something you have to do. Whenever you have someone important around, you will have a, a, a rug on the floor. You have the food in the middle. Everybody sits around the edges of the rug. You tuck your feet underneath yourself. You sit on your feet. Okay? You recline. You have to know which side to recline on because one hand's for eating and the other hand's for doing other stuff, which we won't go into right now. Okay, and you eat, but you allow uninvited guests to stand around the edges of the room so they can benefit from the conversation, benefit from the wisdom, and once the invited guests have finished eating, everyone else who's there in the room can just help themselves to what's left over. There's no refrigeration. This is 2,000 years ago, and it's hot. Whatever is eaten spoils. So you prepare more than enough food because you don't want it to run out for your guests, and then everyone else can come. So everybody knows that you, know, you can just come. So she comes, and she's standing in the corner of this room, out of the limelight. She's in the dark. And she is now looking at what happens. And Jesus arrives. Now, why is she crying? Well, look, whenever you arrive at someone's house, there's a little ritual you go through. You may notice it. In England, it goes something like this. You knock on the door, you open the door, and you say, well, I'm sure you do this in Kansas too, what do you say? Come in. And then after you say, come in, in England, you normally say, may I take your coat? Because it's always so cold. Okay? Now, I know here sometimes it gets hot, but yeah, that's the next thing you do. The next thing you say is, would you like a drink? Right? And you offer them a drink. And then the last thing you say is, please have a seat. Now imagine you go to see someone's house. Okay, you knock on the door, they open the door, and they go, it's you. And they walk off. Well, that's ambiguous, isn't it? But if they don't shake your hand, they don't offer to take your coat, they offer you no drink, and they offer you no seat, what do you conclude? They didn't want you there. The way it works in the Middle East is you come to someone's home, first thing they do is they greet you with a kiss. Now, that's very important. You normally kiss, normally, especially if, if it's a close person, three times, maybe more. You go on the cheeks, backwards and forwards. That's why 
In Anglican churches in the Middle East, when they say, hey, let's greet one another and offer one another a sign of peace, you don't shake people's hands. You lean over and you go, kiss, kiss, kiss. I had a friend from the Middle East who was visiting an Anglican church in the UK. He forgot this once. They said, well, now offer one each other a sign of peace. Turned around to this lady behind him, kissed her on one cheek, went to kiss the other cheek, but she froze, so she didn't turn her head, so he ended up kissing her full on the lips. <laughs> At this point, her husband turned around. It was a very interesting <laughs> scenario. So the first thing you do is you give a kiss. That's the handshake. That's the basic, you're welcome here. Then what you do is you give water for your feet to be washed. Now, why do you do that? Well, you've got animal transport, donkeys, horses. And you may notice, if you've ever seen these animals walk along, that as they go in one direction, something tends to drop out the other. Now, in a hot climate, that dries up. It gets mashed into the floor. Okay, with all the other animal droppings, for all the, you know, everything else that everybody needs to provide for their family, you know, the goats and the sheep and so on. So you've got these dusty floors, and everyone's wearing sandals, like the guy who came and did the reading for us. That's very Middle Eastern, well done. Great. <laughs> but your feet get encased in that dust, and that dust is made out of... I'm trying to think of nice, polite words. Okay, but you get the picture, right? Now, it's hot and it's sweaty. How do you sit in the meal? You don't, there aren't chairs. You recline. So Jesus doesn't sit at the table. I know it says that in some text. He reclines at it. You tuck the feet underneath you. You sit on your feet, right? Okay, because it's insulting to show the sole of your foot to someone, especially in a Middle Eastern climate. You just don't do that. But if your feet are coasted in that stuff and your feet are hot and sweaty and you sit down on them, when you stand up, you're going to have like this brown, smelly thing at the back of you. And that's embarrassing. So, of course... You offer water for the washing of feet. It's a basic necessity. And if they're of someone who you esteem, you pour oil on their head. That's not required, but that'll be a sign of honor. Someone important has come to my home. Jesus turns to his host and he says to this religious leader, he says, you gave me no kiss. But from the moment I entered, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You gave me no water to wash my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no anointing for my head, but she broke this perfume and she anointed my feet because she feels unworthy to touch the top of his head. Now, do you see what's going on here? This woman sees Jesus come into the room and she sees how he's treated. And he's treated with disdain. No welcome, no greeting, no water, no honor. And it cuts her to the heart and she starts to weep. And she cries. And she starts to try to make up for the lack of hospitality extending to Christ. She tries to make it up as best as she can. She uses her tears as water. She uses her hair as a towel. And she takes the basic tool of her trade and she smashes it at the feet of Jesus, and she uses it to anoint his feet. Now, here's what's very interesting. Jesus then tells a little parable, and he says, look, two people were forgiven a debt, one a small amount and one a large amount. Do you remember this story? Jesus says, who do you think will love the most? And the Pharisee says, well, the one who was forgiven the most, I guess, will love the most. And Jesus says, that's correct. Then he looks to this woman, and he says, do you see what she has done? Then Jesus says something very interesting. Her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. Now, if that's how it's translated in your Bible, there's a slight problem there because it seems to imply that the parable Jesus is saying, hey, once you've been forgiven, you love in accordance with your, that. If you've been forgiven a lot, you love a lot. If you think you've been forgiven a little, you'll love little. What comes first, forgiveness or love? The answer is forgiveness, right? 
The forgiveness comes and you love as a result. But if that translation is correct, it seems to imply that because she loved, she was forgiven. It's the other way around, do you see? So is Jesus contradicting himself? And the answer here is no, because the Greek word hoti here is used three times in the Old Testament to translate the verb so that. What Jesus is saying is you see this woman? She loved much. Her many sins have been forgiven. It's in the past. So that she loved much. What Jesus is saying is, Simon, you see this woman? She has heard me speaking about the kingdom. She has heard me already, she must have done, speaking about the forgiveness of sins. She feels totally unworthy. She is, feels the least worthy person in the room. But somehow in her heart, she's cried out to Christ, however imperfect her understanding, and she has been forgiven. And we know that because Jesus himself puts it in the past tense. Her many sins have been forgiven. He doesn't say, I'm forgiving her now. He doesn't say, I'm going to forgive her in a moment. They have been. And because she has been forgiven so much, she loves me a lot. You have insulted me, Jesus says to this guy. How do you expect her to react? She's trying to make up for what you haven't done. He thinks he's okay. Does that make sense? The guy who welcomed Jesus, he thinks he hasn't done anything terribly wrong. He doesn't need to be forgiven much. He doesn't even think he needs forgiveness. He doesn't need Christ. She needs him. Let's come back to the story now of, the, of, the, of the, these two guys praying in the temple. The Pharisee, the righteous guy, stands there saying, look at me, I'm wonderful. The tax collector, however, he stands at the back. He beats his chest and he weeps. Now, this is a very unusual picture. There's only one other instance in all of Scripture where a man beats his chest in remorse. Women beat their chests in biblical times, not men, if they are remorseful. And that's at the foot of the cross. When some of the disciples look on Jesus dying and they are so distraught by Jesus' death on the cross, they beat their chest. So this tax collector, just like this woman, he feels totally unworthy. He's standing in the back. He beats his chest and he looks down. Now Jews, they pray looking up, but he looks down because he feels so unworthy. And then he makes a very interesting prayer. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, here's the, the key point that you have to understand before we come back to answering this question. When I was raised in the Middle East, what a lot of Islamic scholars would say, look, as you Christians, you don't understand your own Bible. You Christians think that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross in order for you to be forgiven your sins. But you need to read what Jesus himself said. Didn't Jesus tell the story and say, if you come before him, beat your chest, weep and you're sorry that God will forgive you? And you say, Lord, have mercy on me. And then you go home having been justified before God, having been made right before God, having been forgiven before God. Isn't that what Jesus said? Now, we know that these prayers which have been offered up have been offered up in the context of a service, not in terms of private prayer. How do we know that? Well, the two men, Jesus said, go to the temple together to pray. They leave the temple at the same time. They pray at the same time. But it's the prayer of the tax collector that nails it. Because he doesn't pray, Lord, have mercy on me, using the common Greek word, eleison. Now, if any of you have a church background, an established church background, you may be familiar with the kyrie eleison, Christe eleison. You know, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. But that's not what this guy prays here. He doesn't pray for eleison. What he prays is helastatoimoi, which literally means make a propitiation for me. Now, we don't know, we don't really use that word a lot anymore, which is why we so often now just simply translate it mercy. But that's why we know this took place 
in a temple service, in a worship service. Because when in Hebrew you say, I'm going to the temple to pray, it either means I'm going to go on my own to offer a private prayer, or it means I'm going to an act of worship. It's the context which tells you whether other people will be there. Clearly other people are there, but the prayer nails it. Every morning and every evening, a lamb is sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins in the temple. After the priest has made that sacrifice, he then walks off out the back, literally into the shadows behind a curtain, and he prays for the nation. At this point, everyone's looking at an empty stage, and there's nothing for them to do. So they stand outside praying. That's why in Luke 1:14 it says, when it fell to Zechariah's turn to burn incense in the temple of the Lord, that when he went behind the curtain to pray in Luke 1.14, the Bible says everyone stood outside praying. Well, of course they're going to do it. I mean, they're not going to just stand there for 20 minutes you know, waiting for the guy to come back out. This is your chance to pray for what you want to pray for. And the lamb is sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. This Pharisee looks on who feels no need for forgiveness in his life, and he says, look, aren't I better than everyone else? Thank you, God, that you blessed me this way. I'm not like adulterers. I'm not even like that tax collector. You know, I give more than you require. I'm more spiritual than you require. I'm doing so well. And the tax collector is there, and he sees the sacrifice for sin. He sees God making a provision for forgiveness, and he prays, Lord, may that be for me. May that sacrifice for sin, that propitiation for sin, that price you're paying for sin, may that be for me. It's incredible, isn't it? You can both go to church, both go to the temple, both be part of the same service, both see the same, behold the same lamb sacrificed for sin, sing the same songs and say the same liturgy, and walk out. And what Jesus is saying is one of these people was not justified before me and will not be in heaven, and one was. But the one who goes home having been justified before God is the one who saw the lamb sacrificed and said, may that be for me. God, be propitious to me, a sinner. I am wrong, I have fallen short, and I need you to forgive me. And Jesus says, I tell you, that person goes home having been justified rather than the other one. What Jesus is saying right at the end there about humility is he's not saying, hey, if you can make yourself humble enough and you can make yourself sorry enough, God will forgive you. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, is when you see the lamb sacrifice of sin and you know it's for you, that will humble you. And if you will bow your knee before that and say, Lord, this has to be for me, he will forgive you. And on the final day, you will be exalted. Both of the men in this story lead very ugly lives. The Pharisee lives a very ugly life for all of his righteous self-importance and self-correction and everything else. And the tax collector has led a very ugly life because of all the evil and terrible things he's doing. The only difference, it's not a question of one is better than the other. That's not it at all. They're both sinners. They're both lost. One is able to recognize it and the other one refuses. The one who recognizes their brokenness and lostness before God is forgiven. And the one who won't recognize it is saved, uh, is, is lost. As you sit here today, where are you in light of this cross of Christ? We call it the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace says there's nothing that you and I can do to rescue ourselves. We all find ourselves in the same boat and we're all in the same mess. Now, I want to be careful with this analogy. A very famous preacher once said, we're all boats on a lake. All of our boats are leaking. You know, water's coming in. That's like sin pouring into your life and we're all going to sink. 
but God wants to come and rescue us. And I'm asking you today, do you have the hole, a hole in your bottom? Which wasn't the best way to phrase the appeal. <laughs> both of these guys are lost. They're both sinners. The prostitute wasn't better than the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. The tax collector isn't better than the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. That's not it. They've both been offered forgiveness. A provision, a price has been made for the sacrifice of sin. The question is, will you avail yourself of it or not? If you are here and you've only ever stood the Christian faith as trying to do certain things to impress God, or trying to serve Him in some way, or give to Him in some way in order to secure a place in heaven, you haven't understood what's at the heart of the Christian faith. The heart of the Christian faith is this message that all of us need forgiveness. All of us are broken. All of us are lost. God loves us. He's come into this world. He sought us out. He's paid the price. He went to the cross. He made our sin his sin. He became a curse for us. He identified himself with us. He went up and was nailed to the tree. He bore the brunt of God's anger and wrath that should have fallen on us. He conquered over it through his resurrection and life, and he offers us new life in him. That's why Paul says in Romans, I can't boast in anything else apart from Jesus Christ and his cross. In that I can boast. Why is Paul so sure he's going to heaven? Because he's arrogant? No. Because he knows God has forgiven him. God has made a provision for him. And God has done it. And God has promised it. And he can rely on God. That's why he's sure. He's not sure about himself. He's sure about God's promise. God keeps his promises. Have you availed yourself of that? That's what it means to be a Christian. And when you look on Christ and you ask Him to forgive you, it is inherently humbling. It brings you to your knees. There is no room for boasting and arrogance in the Christian faith apart from what God has done for us. The rest of it just humbles you. If you have encountered arrogant and proud Christians who are so boastful of what they have done, you need to question the reality of what's going on there. Because Jesus is speaking to some very religious people here. And he's saying to them, if you think that by what you're doing and how you're acting, you're endearing yourself to me, you are mistaken. But if you recognize the provision I have made for you and receive that, have you received it? Do you know that forgiveness in your life, that, that peace with him? He's made it possible to rescue you. And he's here today. Sometimes people say to me, Michael, I, 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 the Christian gospel seems very unfair. They say, it's like, imagine, he said, I didn't ask to come into this world. I didn't ask for all of this mess. I wasn't consulted about that. And I'm in this world that's just surrounded in sin. I'm drowning in it. And God comes along to me and judges me for it. And then I die. And then he punishes me for it. So how's that fair? Well, if that's the mental picture, that's grossly unfair. But imagine this. Imagine you're in a sea and you're drowning. And God comes along and he holds out his hand and says, put your hand in mine and I'll take you out. And you say, no, thank you. I'll do it on my own. And God says, you can't swim. You're going to drown. Take my hand. I'll pull you out. And you say, if I save myself, I'm going to do it on my own strength. Thank you very much. And then you drown. Now, does that change the picture at all? In Christ, 
God stretches out his hand to all of us and asks us to put our hand in his. He pulls us out. I'd love to be able to pray for you this morning. If you have drifted very far from Christ, you're no longer walking with him. Or even more importantly, if you know you're on the outside looking in, even if you've claimed to be a Christian, but it suddenly feels like for the first time you're hearing the gospel. It's like God himself has reached out, put his hand on your heart, and you know that you, you have failed, that you do need to be rescued. You see Christ for who he is as the Son of God. You understand why he went to the cross and what he did there. And you want to receive the new life he's secured through you through his resurrection. If that's where you are, I'd love to be able to pray for you right now. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I'm wondering if I could just invite you just to close your eyes for a moment. And we're going to pray. Now, if you're visiting here and you've got your eyes closed, just put your hand on your wallet or your purse because we live in a wicked and a brave generation. <laughs> I don't want anyone to lose anything. But as if you sit here, you know you need to say yes to him today. You need to, you're looking on the cross and you're saying that needs to be for me. I need that forgiveness. I need that price you paid for me that I may be forgiven and with you. Then I'd just love to be able to pray with you. If you'd like me to pray with you, i just ask, there's nothing magical in this at all. It's just so I know who I'm praying for. But if that is where you are, I'll just ask you just to raise your hand where you are, just put it up high so I can see it, and then I'll just love to be able to pray for you, if you'll give me that privilege. Yeah, sure, I see right down here at the front and also several at the back. Well, if that is you, and that's where you are, then please pray this with me. We pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for who you are. You are the God who delights to rescue. I want to thank you that you stepped into this world. And I'm very sorry for my sin. And I turn away from it. And I turn to you. I want to thank you that you are the lamb who was sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin. You've paid the price for me. You have taken what should have been mine onto yourself. Lord, I need your forgiveness. I will follow you whatever it may cost me and wherever it may go. Lord, I want to be your disciple. We pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Now, I'd just like to say one other thing. Do I have time to say one last thing? I, there was something I was going to do and I uh, just forgot. I may not have time to do it as I wanted to, but I'd just like to say just a couple of words to those of you here who are Christians, but you feel tired in your Christian faith. The story of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple praying is incredible. The trouble is, is that sometimes we feel we're inadvertently moving from one category to another. Does that make sense? We're feeding less with the raw delight of the, of the tax collector and identifying more with the the consistent sort of trudgery of the Pharisee. There's something which is happening in our culture, and it's 
It's a very difficult thing to resist. We are increasingly treating people as objects. Now, the difference between an object and a subject is actually very profound. An object is something which I use or consume for my pleasure. Okay? So I take a nice juicy apple, I eat it. But a person is someone I connect with. So my relationship between me and an object is one of consumption. My relationship between me and a person is one of connection. Now this is why the forces of pornography and everything else in our culture are wreaking havoc on human hearts. Because they reduce people in objects to be consumed and used for our pleasure. And if you were to come to me and say, Michael, do you like working with Ravi Zacharias and RZIM? If I were to say to you, yeah, they've been using me for the last 20 years. You would hear me say something very seriously wrong. I'm saying they've treated me as an object and they're using me for their own purposes rather than they're connected with me as a person. And you would understand it just about the worst thing you can say about your friends, lovers, employers, is, is they were using me. We use objects. Now here's the problem. Imagine this. Imagine you ran away from home. You lost everything, you blew every cent you have. And after decades of estrangement, you come back to your parents and you knock on their door and they greet you with tears and hugs and you say, I'm sorry, I messed up. I'm sorry for all the money I stole. I'm sorry what I did to you. And they come back and they ask for forgiveness. You would forgive them, right? But let's suppose you know, after a couple of months they run away again or you run away again. You take the money, more money, whatever, and you fall into the same problem. A year later, you're destitute, you go back to your parents. Once again, with tears, God, I'm sorry. My parents, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Please forgive me. They welcome you back in. They restore you, they feed you, they house you, they give you money. A couple of months, you're gone again. So now you come back a third time, and then a fourth time. Now the fifth time or more you come back, it starts to get hard, doesn't it? All those tears that flowed so easily on the first time round now seem... You can't even conjure them up the fifth time around. It just seems not possible. And it, here's the problem. The problem you now have is not that the forgiveness which is being by your offered by your parents isn't real. The forgiveness you feel you need in your heart isn't real. That's the problem. There's a huge danger in the church when we treat God like a spiritual ATM machine. When we come to church on a survey service, we punch in his name into an ATM and we get a little chit that says we're forgiven and we walk away feeling better about ourselves. And then we do exactly the same thing we did last time and then we come back again and we do the same. And we keep repeating the process. The problem is, is not that this becomes meaningless for God, but it becomes meaningless for us. God is a person. It's not an object to be consumed by us to make us feel good about ourselves. He is a person. He loves you. He wants you. Even if you've messed up 77 times 7, he really wants you. Don't think of your repentance before God as a mean to make yourself better today. He genuinely loves and wants you. He has given everything for you. He is desperate to have this joyful, life-giving, life-affirming relationship 
with you. If your heart has become hard because of what in the past was not sincere, you need to be reminded again that this incredible God of grace does indeed love you. It is never too late. You have never gone too far. He will bring you back. He longs to restore you. You need to be determined when you say sorry and repent not to keep going back into those patterns over and over again which are just cutting your soul. But receive it from him. So I'd like to offer a second prayer, if I may, just before we go into the final time of worship and benediction. For those of you who know that you feel you just need some kind of spiritual renewal in your life, you don't find spiritual renewal in the Christian faith by psyching yourself up. That's not going to work. You will find renewal and fall in love with God again when you realize how faithful he has been, regardless of how unfaithful you have been, how deep his love runs for you, how far he has gone to rescue you, and how he longs to pour his Holy Spirit into your hearts and minds that you may be transformed and have a relationship with him. Don't let this opportunity go. Can I just pray? Well, I'm not going to ask for hands, but let me just pray for any of you who are there. Father, Lord, you know that sometimes as Christians, Lord, we so often do begin to think of you as an object. We know that's wrong. Lord, you haven't, we, have, we don't want to come here to consume you. We want to come here to have communion with you. We want to be here in fellowship with you. Lord, we want to thank you that you love us even when we didn't love you. Father, that even when we treated you as an enemy, Lord, you came. And Father, we pray, Lord, make us, help us to find that way, Lord, for that personal connection with you afresh again today. Lord, we want to thank you for your grace that you've poured out on the cross. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we ask, Lord, not that we may go through anything by rote or by repetition, but Lord, you'll help us to see you afresh this day. Lord, to behold your cross afresh today. Understand who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be through Jesus Christ again today, that we may fall deeply in love with you. Lord, and know the joy of our salvation restored to us once again. And we pray this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.